Okay. Well, we've been doing different ones for the end times of living during difficult days. And one of them that was put on our list that we've never approached is the concept of mindsets and what mindsets can do to us. Now, I have some great notes and outlines and lessons ready on mindsets, but I was listening to this man pray Sunday at church and he just said one sentence and it sparked this whole lesson. So the concept tonight or the title of what we're going to go into are mindsets that you might have that block change in your life. Like mindsets that are keeping you from changing. It's blocking that. So I want you to pay attention when God is trying to change your mindset. Don't lock in. God is always trying to do this. This is something he's always trying to do with you. He is constantly trying to change your mindset. What mindset do you have that God is after? You better be able to answer that one. Like this is a mindset that he's working on renewing. Because mindsets can filter out your ability to make a change or to be changed. You can live and die and never be changed. So we're going to begin this, and I'm going to give you some examples in the Bible. First, we're going to begin with Saul. We would all agree that King Saul needed changing. He was weak, insecure, and a controller. <laughs> he was both. <laughs> and could he change? And so what's amazing about the King Saul concept is that the idea to change is right there in his initial calling. I want you to look at 1 Samuel 10, verse 1. And I want you to look at what God wanted out of Saul. And also to evaluate whether this came about or not. But in verse 1, Samuel anointed Saul king. And in verse 6, we're going to skip down. It says, you will prophesy with him. He said, Saul, this is going to happen in your life. The donkeys, you know, are going to be found, blah, blah, blah. And he said, you're going to meet some men. And when you see them... He said, you're going to prophesy with them. And then this is your key line in verse 6, 10, 6. It says, Saul, you will be changed into another man. Now, this is prophetic. This is telling you Saul will be changed. Would you agree that Saul is changed? He's a changed man? But this is prophetically telling you that it will come about. Are there some prophecies that you are having said to you that will never come about because you have a mindset that keeps it from happening? Or you let it in just a little? Or it's a nice idea or it's theoretical? Because this is unique. It says you will prophesy with them. By the time you get the gift of prophecy flowing out of you, and it says you will be changed into another man. So I'm going to have you write down this concept the long-term will of God for your life is change. That is what he's doing all the way through. What's God's will for you? Change. And then it says, verse 7, I love this concept. When this occasion comes upon you, do what the occasion requires. <laughs> it's very unusual words. We want to approach it. I did it in a Bible study called What the Situation Demands. Like there are situations in your life that demand something from you. What this occasion requires from you. 
So when you come up and encounter the supernatural, it pulls something out of you. It requires something. It demands something. And this is so that you'll be changed into another person. So each situation that you're encountering has a pull to it. If you are not daily changing or daily doing what you don't want to do, somewhere along the way, you've said to yourself, change is hard. If it's hard, it's not God. And you've entered into some type of a mindset that that's how you're living your life. Verse 9 and 10, it's interesting. It happened, just like Samuel said, that Saul joined their prophesying and Saul prophesied. I want you to put a note here that possibly what it was is I can do it once and it counts. I can do what my prophecy says once in my life and that counts. But I would put verse 7 with it and say you do it every time the situation requires it. Like if you learn worship, if you learn prophecy, some people think, oh, it's just once. If you do it just once, you have a mindset you're proving something to yourself spiritually. It's back with the flashlight on yourself. I'm proving to myself who I am. But this is as the situation requires it. What you're going to have to do in life is answer your mindset. Sometimes God drags you into conflict. Sometimes you're there with the enemy speaking in your ear, so you will answer the conflict. Jesus had to answer mindsets. He had to answer temptations. He had to answer things that were coming against him. But if you'll answer it, it'll stop the struggle. If you'll answer it, you'll resolve it. And then it became the funny statement, is Saul among the prophets? So this is the beginning of the concept of you have mindsets that are resisting change. You're resisting what God is wanting to do with you. Oh, you go far enough to put your toe in. You may do it once, but you may tell yourself if it's hard, it's not God. In 1 Samuel 19, I'm going to give you a second example. This is later in Saul's life. If you can believe it, this is when he's chasing David. But a word came to Saul, and someone whispered to him, Hey, David's in Ramah, you know, with Samuel. So Saul sends men to capture David. But guess what happens? This one's funnier than the fire falling from heaven and consuming them. When they go to capture David, guess what? Ramah's the place where the school of prophets is. So the men that go to capturing bump into a bunch of prophets prophesying. Do you remember what happens to these guys that bump into the guys that are prophesying? With Samuel standing there leading them, yeah, the Spirit of God falls on them and they prophesy. Now these are guys that are going to do something that is against the will of God. These are guys that are Saul's men. Can you make this make sense to you? They're going, they bump into prophecy, and it makes them start prophesying. It stirs it up. We think prophecy's hard? <laughs> this is hilarious. <laughs> well, maybe that was just a mistake. Let's erase that. Let's go to 21. So Saul was told about it. So what's Saul's brainy ideal? I'll do it again. He thinks he'll get a different result. So he sends more men. And guess what they do? They bump into the guys, and they start prophesying a second time. Saul goes, okay, this isn't working. This isn't just a, 
a misfit. It's really happening. So Saul sent men a third time, and they prophesied. So that's when he comes to this great conclusion. Finally, he decides, I've got to go myself. I know I can resist it. <laughs> I've been resisting God for a while now. I've been deranged. <laughs> you know, the Spirit of God's off of me now. You remember, the kingdom's been stripped. I mean, Saul's saying that. He's saying, you know, the, God's pulled his spirit, and now there's this evil spirit. So Saul goes, verse 23. But the Spirit of God came on him also. But God has a sense of humor. So he walked along prophesying until he came up to Naoth. Then he stripped off all his clothes. <laughs> and then he prophesied in Samuel's presence. There's nothing like your enemy laying there naked prophesying. I mean, that's when you get things under your feet. <laughs> and he didn't just lay naked for a little bit. It says he laid naked all day and all night. And this is where the joke came, is Saul among the prophets. It's these two encounters. Prophets will help you change your mindsets. That's what they're made for. They will help you to know what you're supposed to change. Because guess what? Sometimes you change the wrong thing. Sometimes you fix the thing that's not broken. Sometimes you decide, oh, I'll change this, and that's the exact thing that God's leading you into that he's wanting out of you, and you don't change the wrong thing. You know, I don't know how God does it. How does he work with us? Well, he sends prophets. <laughs> that's one way he does it. So the prophets in your life, you need to think about when you get a prophecy. They're meant to change you. Like it's supposed to be a moment in time where Oh, that prophecy is changing the way that I perceive something. My decision maker, it's changing me. Prophets are supposed to change it. A second thing, experience. Saul had an experience with the Lord, and it's supposed to change you. When you have an experience with the Lord, revival hits your soul. Something major happens. It makes a change in you. Remember my professor... I'm going to say it this way. The change that makes no change is no change at all. The difference that makes no difference is no difference at all. It makes a change in you. Saul encountered something to change him. It's the supernatural of God. All right. So I want you to reevaluate what God's wanting out of you. The second guy we're going to look at is Gehazi. Gehazi springs into action. And we're going to just start where he springs into action in 2 Kings 5, 20 through 27. So you can go back and read the whole story of where Naaman is healed from leprosy. And let's just say that Naaman is very grateful for being healed. In fact, he has done something by faith. He has brought half the treasures of Syria with him in order to reward this prophet that's going to heal him. And Elisha said no. So it starts with the word in verse 20, but. <laughs> but Gehazi. Now I want you to look at the qualifications. I don't think this is an accident here. Gehazi has quite a few little things that he does in scripture. It says, but Gehazi, the servant of Elisha. The first thing you got to realize is he was submitted to someone. He was the servant to Elisha. As Elisha had served Elijah, 
Gehazi now serves Elisha. Elisha served Elijah. Now Gehazi serves Elisha. Now, so it says, but Gehazi, the servant of, of Elisha. I would say right here, just fulfill that role and you'll be fine. Just stay a servant. Don't get out of your lane. <laughs> Don't mess it up. But then he puts a qualification on it. It's not just any man named Elisha. It says the servant of Elisha, the man of God. The reason he served him or the blessing to him serving him is this was a man of God. But this is where the story begins or actually ends. I'm going to quote my mom. It would have been better for Gehazi not to have gotten out of bed this day. There are some days it's just better you not get out of bed. It would have been better for you. But Gehazi, he jumps up. And after Naaman had traveled some distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Look, my master was too easy on Naaman, this Armenian, by not accepting from him what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I'm going to run after him, and I'm going to get something from him. So Naaman looks back in his rearview mirror of his chariot, his camel, and he sees that someone's running after him. He sees the dust. And he stepped down from the chariot to meet Gehazi. And Naaman said, is everything okay? And Gehazi said, oh yeah, everything's okay. My master has sent me. Mm. Look, two men came to me from the group of the prophets in the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them 75 pounds of silver and two changes of clothes. You know, he has to do a sales job here. He has to sell Naaman on the fact Elisha has changed his mind. And that's what he's telling him. He's not doing it in his own name. He's not parting from Elijah. He's using Elisha to tell him, hey, this is something that Elisha needs. And Naaman said, oh, oh, my, take 150 pounds. Let's double it. He persuaded Gehazi to take the silver. Can you imagine? Oh, I just can't. I can't. I can't take it. <laughs> you see his little fingers filled. The... <laughs> so Naaman uh, put 150 pounds of silver in two bags, and he took two changes of clothes. Then he gave these things to two of his servants. The servants carried these things for Gehazi. Well, he can't carry that himself. Bless his heart, that's too heavy. So the servant has servants. <clears throat> and he sent his assistants away, and they left. Now they parked him right at the front door. They put down what they've been carrying for him. And he was like, I'm going to hide these in the house. So he does a stash. <laughs> he knows where to put them. So he stashes them. And Gehazi comes in and he stood before his master. And this is the moment. He stood before his master. We feel it coming, don't we? Mm -hmm. If you've ever worked with someone that's a person of the Lord, a man of God, they can tell when you stand there and something ain't quite right. <laughs> and Elijah says to Gehazi, where have you been, Gehazi? He's confronted. That's the beauty of prophecy, is being confronted. Gehazi answered him, I didn't go anywhere. Elisha says to him, that's not true. The answer was, where have you been? I've not gone anywhere. And look at this most beautiful sentence to everyone but Gehazi. It's not true. 
because my heart went with you. They were aligned in ministry together. They were connected. They had a tie. And when Gehazi went, Elisha went with him. His spirit went with him. You carry the man of God's spirit with you. My heart was with you when the man turned from his chariot to meet you. I was there. What a statement. And then Elisha tells Gehazi something. And this is the point of correction so that you can learn something. He tells him something that you need to write down here. He said to him, this is not the time to take money, clothes, olives, grapes, sheep, cattle, men, women, servants. This is not the time. See, this guy was moved by the seasons. He discerned the seasons. He knew there's sometimes a time for something and sometimes not a time for something. And he told him, you're in the wrong time. With the wrong heart, you're moving the wrong direction. That's what prophets do. They're trying to tell you, not only don't do it, but they give you the, the why, the reason. They're giving a change to you. You know, the sad thing about Gehazi, it looks like he didn't ever change to become like his master. And it bothers me to think that there are times when you can be with someone, but you don't ever become like them. Like, you quit growing. Because you quit trying to figure out why they do what they do. You know, I served with someone like this that was truly a man of God. And I watched people stop. They would camp out at certain levels and say, I'm only going to grow this far with them. I'm only going to understand them this much. From that point on, they're the prophet. From that point on, they leave me in the dust. They leave me in the dark. And I'm telling you that the Spirit of the Lord wants you to understand why they do what they do. They're explaining the Lord to you. They're explaining it to you. You can't tell yourself, I'm going to grow this much, and then I'm going to quit growing. Now, what made Gehazi have this idea that he needed to do this and I'm going to tell you it's going to hit you either one way or the other if you heard my terrific and terrible it comes out of the same root word terrific or terrible this is the same concept in Gehazi there was an, a mindset and either there was a mindset of neglect and he felt sorry for himself and he was thinking about what he was missing out on or there was a mindset of entitlement. They're opposite. Entitlement, neglect. But it could be both. And so Gehazi was letting some mindset talk to him rather than his mind figure out what is it that, why would Elisha tell him no? Why would Elisha say no? I've seen Elisha act differently in different situations. Why is ever healing different? Why is everything different? And he didn't explore this. He didn't study Elisha and learn why he said his no. But Elisha made it a teaching moment for him and told him. The third guy, and the last one we're going to uh, discuss before we go into talking about this ideal in our own life and practical application is Judas. And I want you to think about Judas for a moment because with some people you empower them. 
And Jesus empowered Judas. <laughs> Some odd thoughts in here. Number one, Judas, like the others, had left everything to follow Jesus. Matthew 19, 27. He had heard what Jesus said. And he not only got to hear what Jesus said, but he got something that no one else got. He got commentary. Like, Jesus would speak publicly, but privately they'd say, explain it. So much of Jesus' private teachings and instructions were directed at his little band, his precious few, the ones that really stuck with him. He explained, Jesus explained the parables to him in the private. John says, oh, there's so much we could write about it, it'd fill all the world with books. Judas was privy to this. He watched the miracles. He watched the healings. He saw that this guy could raise the dead. Raise the dead. He watched the demons come out. He had something over him while he was with Jesus that he lacked nothing. It's interesting to think that Judas lacked nothing. That Jesus asked the disciples, have I done a good job with y'all? Luke 22, did you lack anything? And they all said, we lack nothing. He was close to abundance. He saw the bread multiplied. And he was close to power. That feeling of being around someone that everyone wanted to be with. He was close to the power. But Judas had a knack. He was able to blend in. And what's scary about that is to think that people could sit under the teaching of the Bible and they blend in. And you never see a difference. They look like everyone else in the room. Because somehow we think the very privilege of being with Jesus says something about our own spirituality. But he blended in. And so I'm not going to just say, look for that person who blends in, because all the disciples were like, who is it? Is it me? <laughs> but I'm also going to say, look at the parts of you inside of you, the parts of me inside of me that are blending in. Like there's maybe some areas I'm going forward on, but maybe there's some areas that are protected areas, private spots, that I'm blending in with them and I'm saying, Lord, just look over me how sold out I am. Oops, don't, don't pay attention to that little bump, <laughs> that little tear in my eye. So Judas blended in. And then what's shocking it's the same thing that we puzzled over in the Old Testament a few minutes ago, but Judas did the action. He did what Jesus did. Like, he'd been on the teams of two when they were sent out with the 70 and healed the sick. So Judas's team of two healed somebody and cast out some demons. <laughs> Who's your ministry partner? Judas. So let's think of this statement. Judas must have been able to do the miracles with the other ones or he would have been the oddball. And they would have recognized something's wrong with him. Every time he's on the team, it doesn't work. He's the doubt. You know, Jesus, you always kick out the doubters. He's the one it doesn't work for. For three years, we've noticed. But you didn't see it. How could Jesus go out and minister with them and see the same results with what was inside of him? How did Judas become one of the twelve, see the power and all the miracles, and 
apostatize. How could he do it? A-P-O-S-T-A-T-I-Z-E. It's committing the sin of apostasy. How could Judas be with Jesus, see all that he saw, and then become the one in history that committed the sin of apostasy? You know, the thing about Judas, he was close to the ministry. He had a ministry job, ministry provision. So what were Judas's mindsets? Well, if I said, name it quick, what was Judas's mindset? You would say it was what? Money, greed. greed. Yeah, let's just put it down. Number one, he had a money problem. It popped out occasionally. But among the people he was with, money was just kind of (laughs) something that was understandable. (laughs) You know, in certain family groups, you're just like, well, it's money. But look where this mindset led with Judas. A prevalent explanation is that Judas betrayed Jesus for the money. The problem with this is he betrayed him for something petty. It was 30 pieces of silver. Oh, look in the Old Testament. Oh, that's what you gave someone when you crippled their ox. Samson was worth 1100 30. Adam and Eve, it wasn't a bushel of apples. It's one. One bite. Esau gave away everything he had for one bowl of soup. You know what's scary about this is that we can let go of eternity for something so petty. We can sell our soul for a bowl of soup, for something so insignificant. You know, we think, can we stand the challenge of the whole world if we sold our soul for $9 million? All the money in the world? Why does the devil bother when he can get us so cheaply? Petty. What people will do, even for small amounts of money. You know, it's true. One of Jesus' main weaknesses seemed to be money. When he got close to money, it was a weakness. And I'm going to give you another evidence that money was always on his mind. He thought of everything in dollars of cents. He was one of those type guys. Because is found to be in his negotiation with the religious leaders. His first recorded words with them are, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him up to you? Matthew 26, 15. Because some people try to say, well, he went to deliver him for these reasons and money wasn't a, a factor. But these are his words. What will I get? You know, John says he's just a thief. <laughs> Kleptus where we get our word kleptomaniac. When John talks about a thief, he talks about a person who doesn't walk in the front door, but he comes in another way, unexpected at night. He's a sneak thief. So Judas makes an estimate of the money. Every time he thinks about money, he's thinking percentages, how much he's going to get. He's making figures in his head. He knows the cost. He's one of those types that was savvy of market value. He could figure forward what the money could do. Do you have the ability to? You know, maybe the mindset that Judas had was that he he prided himself, that he was good with numbers, that he was good with money, that he was good with maneuvering. 
or maybe some of the money problem was it was the length of time. Boy, I've sure been doing this for a long time with no real reward. You know, I expect a little return on my investment by now. Three years with nothing? I mean, he has kept me fed, but, you know, he sleeps with rocks for pillows and foxes for running around him. I'm like, a little bit of a compensation. You know, then he goes into presumption. And notice this. This is when he says, oh, Jesus said it himself. It's okay. I heard it in the sermon. He said, don't muzzle the ox. A worker is worthy of his wage. He said that, so I'm worthy. I've been with him. They haven't, I have. I'm just taking a little here and there. However, it wasn't called grazing, nor was he worthy. It was called stealing. But he made a presumption that he fit that clarification. Mindset number two. I mean, there's so many of these concepts of Judas. I mean, you could just speak on what makes us tick forever. And what bothers us about Judas is sometimes we find him not so different than us, not so foreign, not so un-understandable, non-understandable. Sometimes we look at Judas and we think, wow, that's why they all said, is it me? Is it I? So number two mindset is let's force Jesus' hand with the Romans. Let's force his hand. Like he's not getting anywhere. Judas gets aggressive here. It's aggressive, but again, it's passive aggressive. (laughs) It's sneaky aggressive. So let's call these assumptions. We've done presumptions. Let's do some assumptions. Judas says, well, they know who he is anyway. I won't be telling them anything they don't know. He's in public every day. Why not get a little for it? They will get him anyway. They see him out in the day in the open. I'm just identifying him at night for them. Well, he's Superman. He'll get out of this. I've seen him get out of a whole lot more. Assumptions. What was Judas' mindset on this? Something that stuck in him. Every one of us have a compulsive mindset. And it does this little job called filter. And you can't control what you filter. It's your mindset that filters things out. You know, Judas heard Jesus talking about death. And he wanted to get in good with the Romans or force Jesus to take some action. Like, one or two ways. I'm sure he loved his country, and he was thinking, take some action, or I'm going with the Romans. And since Jesus was not willing to set up his kingdom, since Jesus spent all this time and got right up to setting up his kingdom, got right up to setting up a kingdom, because he had spent three years in ministry, working for a ministry, and he went right up to setting it up, and now Jesus is backing out of it. He's just backing right out of it. He's going to, what is he doing? He's going to let it all go down the tubes. He's just going to fail. <laughs> I'm not going to be a part of that. <laughs> I didn't sign on for that. He's talking crazy now. He's talking crazy. It makes no sense. And his bread bag was about to be taken away. He made his mind up. He was going to move whether Jesus moved or not. I'm going to take action whether he does or not. We don't know exactly what it was that was the mindset, but we do know he decided, I'm going to take the action. Third mindset of Judas. One, money. Two, force his hand. Three, the mindset is where Judas is contrasted with a woman. And John 12, 2 through 8. There they made a supper. Martha served, of course, 
Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. But then Mary does something very strange. She takes a pound of very costly oil. And she anointed the feet of Jesus, and she wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. And then one of the disciples, well, let's name names, Judas Iscariot. What do you like about the Bible? (laughs) They don't think like Gentiles and say, we can't say it's not very Christian. (laughs) There his name is. Oh, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son. Make sure we know his dad, too. I'll give you his address as soon as this is over. Well, let's finish here. Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him. <laughs> him, that guy, <laughs> said, Why has this fragrant oil not been sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Why not? And then the writer says, uh, This he said not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and because he had the money box. And he used to take what was put in it. You know, he looked at Mary, and he said she squandered the perfume. That's how he looked at it. What a waste. Poof, it's all gone. It's like buying the Roman candle. But maybe there was this in Judas. Have you ever wondered if he thought, my my opinion's not being counted. You know, Jesus embarrassed me when he squashed me publicly. You know, Jesus publicly embarrassed me. Jesus, you embarrassed me. You know, I've started noticing this about myself. Jesus isn't taking my opinion into account. I've been around this a long time. I know what I'm, I know my opinion's as valuable as everyone else. And he always, he, he always looks over to Peter. Judas might have been feeling his opinion wasn't meaning much. And this is the thing that'll get you in trouble is your opinion. It's one of the sure signs of soulishness. It's a strong opinion. The perfume bottle, let me tell you what the perfume bottle was. It was meant to change his mind. What does Jesus do to work with Judas here? I want to ask you, did Jesus say, hmm, he's prophesied to be the son of destruction. It's going to happen anyway. It's determined. So I'm going to say nothing to him. Can't help him anyway. He's going down over the cliff. Did Jesus in this particular one, did he say nothing? What did he say? So you're going to tell me Jesus did say something. This is not one where he said nothing because it was Judas. He did say something then. So what did Jesus use to try to change his mind? Okay, so I'll stay strictly on this text. So what was it on this one? That's it. But Jesus said, let her alone, for she has kept this for the day of my burial. And then he tells him, for you will have the poor with you always, but you won't always have me. Now, it's contrasted. And I was seeing if one of you would throw on the table, look, you gave me no kiss. You gave me no water for my feet. You gave me no towel. You gave me no greeting. Remember, one, he does hospitality on, Luke's. But not in this one. He hits the most intimate statement here. He says to him, leave her alone. She has kept this for the day on my burial. He talks about his death to the one that has a hand in it. For the poor you will have with you always, but you won't always have me. Like there's some things worth celebrating. There's some things worth it. There's some moments in life that are worth it. I remember standing up in the coffee house when everybody was not paying attention and talking and 
on their phones, and I told them, I said, will you listen to this man? He's telling you how to hear God. You're not going to have him always. But everybody was too busy. I had to yell. Jesus says these words, and they're very intimate. But I want you to notice something else that I caught in this. And I want you to ask yourself, does this happen to you? Do people have to be shielded from your mouth? Do you say things that have to have a shielding? Because Jesus shielded Mary by cutting short the criticism. He interrupted it by saying, let her alone. Like, I know you're going to go further. Let her alone. He cut it off. This is a contrast between the two people. A short and a long. I'll be there for a short time. Poor will be there for a long time. He complimented Mary for her thoughts and action. He told Judas, (laughs) For a man that was worried about his opinion and not being heard, he's being told, your opinion's not worth stating. It's a spiritual law. You can write this down. I've never heard anyone talk on this uh, spiritual law. People who don't have pure motives will be the first to criticize those who do. It's just something that happens. The real irritation may have been, I'm not being listened to in this organization. You know, and some really dumb people are being recognized. What could Judas have learned? Because remember what I told you with prophecy. It's something that's trying to teach you something. It's something where Jesus was taking his time to try to explain something to Judas, who wasn't going to be alive much longer. In fact, Judas would be dead before Jesus was. So John 4, 4 through 6, it's a comparison of Judas with the woman wiping Jesus' feet. It was a comparison of how she earned the money and how Judas was about to earn the money. It was a comparison of what she did with her money and what Judas would do with his money. You're being compared all the time. I walked out of a test today. Jesus said, it's prepared for my burial. Judas could best understand that statement of all of them because he knew Judas had a hand in it. But, you know, Judas determined to make Jesus serve his purpose, sacrifice. Mm. If you don't have an awareness you're being tested, you're probably not passing. Constantly, there's comparisons being made between your judgment and what you're doing, between how you view things and what you're doing yourself. If you don't have much of a rein on that or check on that or finger on that pulse, you're making some huge blunders. Mindset. The Last Supper. John on one side and Judas on the other. They think this because Judas was the first to take the bread from Jesus. So he took the communion from him. At the Last Supper, Judas sat at the table on one side of Jesus, John on the other. And Jesus quotes, Even my close friend, whom I trusted, has shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Judas is about to put Jesus under the heel of his boot. My close friend, in whom I trusted. He was quoting Psalm 41. And then he says to him, Friend, do what you got to do. It was a sneaky little plan, but Jesus let him know, My heart goes with you. He sold his trusted position. Judas had a place at the twelve. He had a place at the table. And he sold it. 
And then Judas uses the most intimate of all language to show his betrayal, the language of a kiss. Jesus knew it. You know, I look for a Bible translation that reads, Jesus washed all the disciples' feet except the feet of Judas. But I couldn't find one. Judas was the three years with him. And the point about Judas is it never changed him. Three years and he never changed to be like the master. He did not figure out his master's heart. That means you can sit here forever and never change. Being incapable of letting ourselves be changed. Think of Saul, Judas, Gehazi. They did not reckon with the prophetic insight that was around them. Saul had not reckoned with the prophetic insight of Samuel. Gehazi did not reckon with the prophetic insight of Elisha. Judas did not reckon with the prophetic insight of Jesus. These are your non-changers. Can you imagine boasting? I survived God and I never changed. Wonder where that voice will be. I survived miracles and I never changed. I survived having some of the gifts of the Spirit and I never changed. Listen to this one. I survived Jesus and I never changed. You know, it floored me that you can be with Jesus himself and your mindsets never change. You need to make a list of your mindsets and you need to identify your predominant ones because we get into the word together. We've been here under the teaching of the word. It gives you knowledge or it changes your mindset. It's either giving you knowledge or it's changing your mindset as I'm speaking now. I'm not here to increase your knowledge. I'm here to change your mind. Are you changing? I've got to see if I'm doing my job. Are you growing in knowledge? Because knowledge puffs you up. 1 Corinthians 8.1 We might be the biggest pig-headed people around thinking we know more than everyone else. It puffs you up. Because you can take your knowledge and you can use it to override. Gehazi used his knowledge to override Elisha. Judas used his knowledge to override Jesus. And even Saul used his knowledge to override Samuel and say, I'll offer the sacrifice because you're late. Look at my clock. What are you doing with your knowledge? Because it'll puff you up. And the job of the prophet is that you change. What does it take? Are you changing your mind to be renewed to the word? These are tests. You're going through tests. It's very exhausting if you don't let relationships and the word change your mindsets. This is what was happening. These relationships are meant to change your mindsets. I'm going to give you a verse. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. 2 Corinthians 3, 6. Let me give you your principle of what you do here. You have to check 
everything, everything for the spirit that's behind it. Every conversation, every conversation you had at work, at school, check it. There's a spirit behind it. Theology, you have to check it for the spirit behind it. Doctrines, you have to check them for the spirit behind the doctrine. Check it. Your friendships for the spirit behind it. The decisions you make, there's a spirit behind your decisions. It's a mindset. It's a spirit behind it. Be very careful when you say these words. I have made my mind up. Many times, I dare say most of the time, you have belly buttoned it. <laughs> this is an an expression <laughs> of oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Everyone has one. A belly button and an opinion. <laughs> and most of the time, you have made your mind up on your own opinion, not on your renewing your mind to the word. And these people are very exhausting. They weary both God and man because they have a mindset. You know what wears people out about you is a mindset. Be it passive, be it aggressive, be it passive-aggressive. It wears people out. And you're wearing yourself out. What are your mindsets? Make a list. Circle the ones. Storm, you're supposed to learn righteousness, and you need to enjoy the change. You know, you think of the children of Israel. What mindset does your generation have? Because it's a mindset of a whole group judgment. Jesus says, I tell this generation. What's the mindset of your generation? You remember the age of the children of Israel that everybody above this age died? What was the age? 20. 20. I'm going to give you that as your age of accountability. It's when I start holding judgment at your feet. What is your mindset? Only two people were pulled out. Everybody above 20 died except for two, Joshua and Caleb. Because the children of Israel had a mindset of slavery. They missed the food of Egypt. They missed the leeks and the onions and that soup that Robbie and Sam make. They don't like camping out. So what does God do when they don't like camping out? He makes them have a perpetual sakat. They face the giant and they don't want to tackle it. They're in a constant state of fight. He let them die because of a mindset. Let's just name the mindset. A comfortable mindset. I don't want to do anything I don't want to do. Comfortable. I want to eat what I want to eat. I don't want difficult conditions. I don't want to fight. I don't want that mentality. Oh my gosh, it sounds like our generation. What is being said to you to try to change your mind? I want you to look at these categories. Prophecy. Prophecy is made to change your mindset. If you're not typing up your prophetic words and reading them to change your mindset, you have already failed. You may be getting your prophecies out. No, oh, I just want them to tell me I'm good. Okay. Encourage me. Saul, you've changed to another man. I've changed. Check. <laughs>
It's supposed to change you. I remember that prophecy I got. It would have been pride, but... I was like, it would have been pride, but... What was I thinking on right before I went up there? Oh, I was thinking, hey, I got a couple of books out. If anything happens, oh, that's pride? Then I've got to repent. Have you ever done that, repented? Oh, yeah, we repent going up there. God, please don't tell. (laughs) (laughs) But it's not the repenting to go up there because that's that just covering yourself. It's the repenting afterwards. It's the, oh, I get it. My heart is going crossways to God's will. You can start by repenting of what he called you. Any ugly name, repent. You're not trusting him. You're not, I mean, it goes down a list. Repent. Be very careful to examine your mindsets. You know, I think what's helped me and what has blessed me so much was these prophecies. I took them with very, very sensitive hands. I was very sensitive to what the Lord was telling me in prophecy. I've watched people make grave mistakes with their prophecies. I hear the word better than they do. I turn on the sensitive ear because sometimes I can tell, ooh, I'm in trouble. Like this one didn't go down well. Like it's been going good, but there's something. It, that, that didn't sound pleasant. Or, oh, I'm getting the same prophecy every single time. Every single time I get the exact same prophecy. Wow, a hundred people go by and he still gives me the same one. (laughs) You're not changing. They don't even stop to think they may be blocking it from getting a hold of them. Their mind is hard ground. Why waste your breath? If you're not listening, why go to the trouble to bring him here. It's for you we're bringing him. You, if you think I'm talking to you in this Bible study, I am. Because, let me make it stronger than that. I'm not talking to you. God is. Because how this thing wrote, I have no idea. It was just, I hear one sentence that you can sit there with Jesus. This is a prayer. And it not affect your life. Am I perfect? No. But I'm telling you, if you sit with someone perfect, it's not going to make any difference. You won't change. It's you. It's your mindset. You're blocking God. Dad, he ruled the house. He managed the household. 1 Timothy 3.5 And so I say, my dad managed me. You might could tell yourself, my dad managed you. (laughs) Were you manageable? Dad managed me, prosthenia, the Greek word. He did that to me. (laughs) And I'm asking you, have you been managed? Did you learn? What was he trying to tell you? What was that prophetic word trying to reach out to you? What was that practical side? What was he warning you about? What was he telling you? What was he telling you to get right? When I repeat my dad, what is he saying? He may have passed, but his words haven't. They never die. He managed his household. Whether he would let things stand, it's one of the most remarkable things about him. Sometimes he would not let my words stand. 
It just would not be allowed to stand. You know what he was doing? He was managing that 10% crazy in me. He was knocking it out of me. And now I want to say something, and this is the point. I'm making the point here. Dad dealt with things as an attitude in me. You've heard me say it. You're saying that's a repeat. But I want you to hear this. He said he was working with my attitude, and he reinforced it. And this made me very aware because constantly he would tell me, I'm working your attitude out of you. I'm working your attitude out of you. I'm working your attitude out of you. That made me sensitive that my attitude was being adjusted. That made me aware that I was supposed to change. By my dad telling me I'm working your attitude made me have something in me sensitive to know, guess who needed to change? That I realized he was examining my attitudes and my mindsets and he was making a change. And so now I give you the blessing of doing the same to you. I'm examining your attitude. He was working with my heart and my mind. He was looking past the facts that I was quoting to him, and he was checking my spirit. And that is your mindset. He was working with both my mind and my heart. That's your attitude. And he was checking it and checking the spirit. Sensitive to this, does it need to be changed? You know those meters they have, time meters now, that are so delicate and sensitive? Temperature. Did you realize they found a, a deeper degree of cold? They're sensitive meters. Some of you have jammed your own meter. You have not put it on yourself. You are not checking the spirit. You're not checking your attitude. Even if it's a small matter, it creates problems inside of me if I hold to just even a little bit of error. What happens to you when you yield to the word and when you don't? It's all the difference in the world. You have to be sensitive to this. You know, I went over to one of the couples. I went over to their house, and we discussed theology that they had studied on the Internet. And with theology, you develop mindsets. The easiest way to know whether theology is right or not is, A, does it have scripture to it? No, that's what you would think. Did you know false teachings have scripture to it? <laughs> yes, I agree, you sharpen the sword with the sword. But remember Hebrews 4 tells you about the word of God. It's sharper than any other two-edged sword. It's able to divide in the deepest levels. What you're checking is the spirit behind it. I'm looking for fruit. What kind of mindset has that theology produced in you? And so that's what we did together. We examined mindsets. They invited me over to be a theologian. I came over as a fruit inspector. Check your mindsets. People are in deception everywhere, and it is not reading on the deception meter. Like, they're not being sensitive. They could know in a second with their spirit, with that meter that checks the spirit. They could know in a second they were off, but they refuse to. They go to their mind, and knowledge puffs up. Knowledge makes a mindset. Mindsets. Adrian.
the guy who realized that he had um, been spoiled growing up. Who would think of this? Adrian, he tells me everything. <laughs> Even <laughs> what he's done that's bad. <laughs> Sometimes I was like, oh, Adrian, he confessed to everything. But he told me I've made a plan to unspool myself. He had been given the mindset of being spooled. And you've got to ask yourself, because you may have the mindset of being neglected, and you may have the mindset of being spooled, but you've got a mindset, and you've got to unspool yourself and unneglect yourself. So he decided to unspool himself. Who does that? Well, I found out a little more. What happened was Jonathan, his son, was being babysitted by his mother. And instead of telling Jonathan no, she would distract him. Like, here, Jonathan, look at this. Don't look at this. And she would never tell the child no. And Kayla looked at her mother-in-law and said, do not ruin my grandkids. Make him learn to handle a no. Have you learned to handle a no, or do people have to distract you or you scream? These are 40-year-old behaviors. Mommy's arms turned to wifey's arms. And that's when it occurred to Kayla. Her husband had been raised the same way. Adrian, were you ever told no, or were you distracted? Is there a way to have a no? Have you ever told yourself no? That's why your no's not holding. Give your parents enough time. They'll forget what they punished you on. You can wait them out. It's a great strategy. You're a negotiator. No. They're not going to put up much of a fight. They're busy. Take advantage of it. <laughs> That's when it occurred and she realized... So some type of shock treatment. I asked Adrian, what'd you do? He said, our preacher gave me some wisdom. He said, my flesh is like the front yard. If I don't mow it, it becomes a fiasco. He says, I've got to cut my lawn regularly. When you cut your grass, that's how you need to do your flesh. Mow your flesh constantly. Keep it in its proper place. Close to the ground. I said, okay, Adrian, that's wonderful. We'll mow our yard. Tell me what that means. Like, nobody's going to apply that. Fast and pray, fast and pray, fast and pray. He said, every time my flesh got out of control, I fasted and prayed, fasted and prayed. And he said, I unspooled myself with fasting and prayer. The filter of the mindset. Mindsets prevent you from receiving the truth. It keeps you from receiving the truth. The mind filters out truth. Truth hurts. Truth is painful. It's scary. It's important to receive the truth that the Lord offers you. Timing is very important. I was thinking of um, people that are very, very stubborn. That they do not receive truth when the Lord offers it. The horrible filters that will not change. Loving truth will deliver you from these foreign mindsets. Be sensitive to the Lord. 
don't go quickly in with my mind made up. Be ready to change it at any given time that you sense that God's not in it, that God's not there. My mind's made up. Ask yourself, how's that work for you? Where has it led you? You know, because you may come on strong and say, my mind's made up. And then you may be sitting there going, I never do that. I don't ever say anything, so I'm safe. Remember the rich young ruler? He never told Jesus no. He just dropped his head. It's not that you're telling God no. You're just not doing anything. It's the case of a void. That's why the prophet comes again and again and again and says the same thing. It's your mindset. You're filtering it out. Gehazi. What was the repercussions of these guys? Well, Gehazi was told it wasn't the season. So the next verse was, now you and your children will catch Naaman's disease and you will have leprosy forevermore. When Gehazi left Elisha, his skin was white as snow and he was perpetually sick with leprosy. He got what Naaman lost. The spirit was looking for a place to rest. I would advise, don't make the prophet mad. <laughs> Sometimes my dad would say stuff and I was like, oh, I didn't need to provoke that. It sticks. Gehazi, he lost his position. It cost him. Judas, listen to this. The time of distinction came that he could not continue anymore on with the Lord because he was going to keep his mindset. Judas would not change. This one is of special interest to me. That's why I took the time with Judas, because Jesus was perfect, and he picked him, and he worked on Judas. And I'm saying, you could be here and never know your mindset was blocking everything the Lord was trying to give you. So in Matthew 27:10, Judas did his final decision. He planned his own death. He was still in control. And Luke records that, that after he hung himself, that his body managed to fall forward and burst, and everything gushed out. You know those foreigners, they love telling it. They probably were giggling when they wrote it. But it's not funny that we pop, explode because of our mindsets. The children of Israel, what happened to them? They died. So, what this is that's holding you back? Are you trying to go for the award that I survived the most years at cross lines and never changed? Are you competing for the award? I wonder. I survived a lifetime and I never changed. I have mindsets that I've held to this day that are mine, completely mine. I've never let God change. I am a non-changer. Some of you, that's your mindset. I will not be moved. I will not change. And it's between you and God now. Because you've refused to change. So I'm telling you, there is a beautiful verse for you tonight. Ephesians 4.23 that you might not have seen. Because the way to hear what I'm telling you 
We think in terms of renew the mind. That's the mindset. Renew the mind. Renew the mind. Romans 12.2. It's our famous verse. But look at this. Ephesians 4.23. You can renew, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Did you know that your mind has a spirit? Check the spirit over your mind. It is not too late. Because behind every single thing is a spirit and God is offering you to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Amen.